Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am going to be speaking with Lisa Bildy. Lisa is a civil rights lawyer. She works for the JCCF. She's been working on some pushback to Bill C6, which sounds great because it's a bill against uh, conversion therapy in Canada, but when you get into it, there's some problems on the gender side. Hey Lisa, thanks for coming back on. Hey, my pleasure. Nice to see you again. So, uh, how have you been since the last time we talked? <laughs> Oh, overwhelmed and busy. It's been crazy. When did we talk? We were just at the beginning of the lockdowns, I think. Yeah, just at the start. Right. So it's been uh, it, it, it's been full on since then. Not a not a break. <laughs> well, I guess yeah, especially like with civil rights. Okay, yeah, Bill C six again. Like I said, when people hear about it, and I know a lot of my friends, it's like, oh, what do you have against con you know stopping conversion therapy? And then you try to get into it, but right away you get a fundamental stop for most people because, you know, you want to have Christian fundamentalists doing conversion therapy on gays and lesbians. Like, that's what they have in their head. If you want to talk about the bill, what it's doing, and then we can go from there. Sure. Well, I will. Um, but let me just address that point, first of all. And I think that's, you know, we, you and I have been following the culture war for a long time. We understand how language gets manipulated for particular ends and, um, and that's what's happening with this bill too. You know, when most people hear the words conversion therapy, their, their minds immediately go to horrific practices that, you know, maybe somebody's got electrodes on their heads or, or they're and having shock therapy or seeing violent images or, you know, uh, all sorts of coercive, ugly things. Um, but it's my understanding from uh, Dr. James Cantor, for example, who, uh, who works in this area in Canada, that really um, this kind of conversion therapy hasn't been happening for decades. And so, you know, they're, they're bringing this in with the intention of people anticipating and, and visualizing the worst possible thing, but what they're actually talking about is something entirely different, which I'll get into. But uh, the other thing I wanted to say in terms of the Christian fundamentalists, well, um, it's interesting who all the witnesses were that were included in the hearings that, that just happened. Many were, in fact, uh, well, the Liberals got to choose most of them, so most of them were supportive of the bill. But the, those who were against it, um, a lot of them were coming from a Christian background. And by the way, there's some legitimate arguments to be made on the bill from that perspective. Um, but my worry was that they were going to just dismiss all of these opponents is just being, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're right-wing conservatives, they're religious people, let's just dismiss everything they have to say. So when I went in to respond and had the opportunity to, to speak at the hearings, I addressed some of the, some of the um, um, things that are inconvenient to the narrative and kind of threw a little bit of a wrench into their, <laughs> into their program, I think. I like to think I did anyway. Okay, I just... I just want to stick with the religious fundamentalist thing for a second, because I've spoken to uh, Buck Angel and I've spoken to um, a young woman who had started her transition around, she said 16, but then stopped. Like she had never done any surgery. She didn't go too far into the hormone therapy, then stopped. And then she started uh, detransitioning. Now speaking to them and then you'll take like, I'll take Iran and Pakistan. They would rather, if they catch a, a gay or lesbian couple, they'll give the couple a choice of one of them going through a transition uh, surgery so that they are no longer a gay couple. Um, I've also heard about this in the States where fundamentalist religious parents were preferring their kids to be trans instead of gay because they are no longer gay. Right. 
Yes, uh, transing away the gay is uh, is what some people are saying and, and are concerned about. And I mean, certainly we don't want to be like Iran, but honestly, that's what this bill kind of forces on us. So do you want to break it apart? I can tell you, tell your listeners what the concern is with it. So, I mean, there's a number, there are a number of concerns. We were looking at it from, you know, uh, as from, from the Justice Center as a, um, we, we look at charter rights and infringements. And so we were looking at it from that lens. And there were a number of ways that the bill is, in our view, uh, in violation of the charter. So they have, a, they have some myths in the preamble. One is that your sexual orientation can be changed and one that your gender identity can be changed. They, they, they take the position that gender identity is conflated with sexual orientation. Well, right away, if you follow the, any of this sort of stuff, you know that that's not, that's not right. Um, we've been told repeatedly that people's gender identity can change multiple times. You know, it, it is what you say it is uh, on any, you know, at any given time. So, but, but they're trying to piggyback gender identity onto our discussed for sexual orientation conversion therapy. And it really does not belong there. And the harms are just absolutely um, unimaginable and, and well, starting to actually be uh, looked at a little bit more seriously. So think about with kids, if basically what the bill is saying is that um, you cannot, con you cannot, apply any sort of conversion therapy to anybody under the age of 18. And conversion therapy is defined as any sort of practice, treatment, or service that's designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or their gender identity to cisgender. Um, so, it, and then it carves out an exception for any service relating to the person's gender transition or to an exploration of their identity or its development. But it basically says there's a one-way street here. You cannot um, try to convert somebody to cisgender. Well, that set off a lot of alarm bells amongst um, therapists who are um, who sort of follow a watchful waiting approach, which aren't very many. I mean, most 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 therapists these days are on the affirmation bandwagon. In other words, when a when a child in particular or an adolescent comes in and says, you know, I I. I'm suffering from gender confusion, or I think I'm, I'm this or that. The, the automatic reaction has been to affirm that as a valid um, uh, declaration and to put them on the path, wherever they might be. You know, maybe that means just socially transitioning them for the time being. Maybe it means if they're a little older, you have to start talking about puberty blockers and so on. But they affirm that declaration of a person's gender identity. Now, the watchful waiting approach or other holistic therapy, and I'm not a therapist, but I've, I've listened to a number of people speak about this, um, is to say, well, let's, you know, let's explore some of the other uh, underlying mental health issues that might be at play here. And let's maybe just give you a little bit of time to, to see where, what you think in a few years time as you, as you get through puberty. And what, has been found is that about 85% of kids, if given that space, will become comfortable in their body that they're born in. And um, so that's the watchful waiting approach. And, and many people started to sound the alarm when this bill came out and said, well, basically you're gonna criminalize uh, any attempt to, to do the watchful waiting because it doesn't immediately affirm this gender identity that somebody has, has come forward and said that they, that they are. Um, and even if it didn't criminalize that, even if the, the wording is very vague and you could make the argument that it isn't clearly going to um, make that illegal, but enough 
people were concerned about it and there's enough we also know that activists do go after people who try to do conversion therapy. They did that with, with uh, Dr. Zucker in, the, um, in Toronto. So at very least, it will put a chill on any sort of therapy other than immediately affirming kids who want to, uh, to transition. So, so what are the harms? Well, why wouldn't you want to affirm a child's gender identity? Um, well, this is what we're starting to get more evidence about now, and, and people are, I think, rightfully um, horrified to find that when you, um, when you put a child on puberty blockers, we've been told that that's just a pause button so that they can have time to figure out what they want to do, but 99% of those kids will go on, they'll commit at that point, they'll go on to uh, cross-sex hormones and potentially surgeries and so on. So basically, if you leave them alone, 85% will just accept their own bodies. But if you don't leave them alone, if you, if you affirm and if you put them on puberty blockers, almost all of them will go forward with a transition. And again, you might say, okay, so, so what? What's wrong with that? They're getting, they're getting the, the body that they want that fits with, with their internal perception. Well, what we're also finding is that the evidence is... Um, that this is going to lead to sterility. It's going to lead to bone density issues. I mean, their, their bone density um, as adolescents, that's when you, you, your bones grow the strongest for in your life, but uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones minimize that, um, that growth. And there's other, there are other health conditions that uh, are, are consequences. Um, loss of sexual function. If they go through all the surgeries, they, they may never experience sexual pleasure. So you're asking kids who are 10 or 12, perhaps, and who are, who are wanting to go on to puberty blockers to make a decision that is going to impact their entire lives. They're going to, if they get on those puberty blockers, they will be on a path that they most likely cannot get off of and will end up with irreversible changes uh, loss of sexual function, sterility, things they can't even contemplate at a young age. So that evidence is now starting to come out and it came out in a case in Britain a couple weeks ago. And, and as a result, that's why a lot of attention is on this bill because it does seem to put kids on that irreversible path. I mean, you mentioned, you know, young kids, a little boy puts on a dress and let's say that, you know, boy's six years old. How much of that at that point, when, you're, when, when a little boy is six years old or when a little girl is, you know, like a little boy or a little girl is six years old and they say something like, you know, little boy puts on a dress, little girl's a tomboy or whatever you want to call it. You know, she plays with trucks. How is a six-year-old able, supposed to be able to say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm a boy now, I'm a girl now, I'm no, I'm no longer what I was born, I'm something else. How much of that is parents? How much of that is, let's say a parent's hears about transgender, they're concerned, they decide, okay, I'll take the kid to a therapist and then it's the therapist themselves were saying, maybe your kid's transgender. Because I can't see a six-year-old being cognizant enough, like articulate that. No, and I don't think they are. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, people have been caught up in, um, in a bit of uh, an ideology as, uh, as we know, the, the queer theory has been permeating through, um, through schools and, and into the mainstream and, and, you know, people think that, um, you know, there, maybe there's some, some cachet to transgenderism and, and 
I, I don't know, I think, is it Gad Saad or maybe others uh, who have kind of commented that this is sort of a Munchausen by proxy kind of thing where, where particularly mothers get caught up in uh, having this special child that, you know, they're giving a lot of attention through their child who, who now has this identity. Um, I mean, I don't know that that's in every case. And, and listen, I want to say that I, I, I have met kids who, um, who do seriously seem to um, benefit from going through a transition process. And I'm not saying that they sh that should never happen, but it shouldn't be the only course. And there are certainly, I've also met other kids who never appeared to be outside of their gender um, box. And we can come back to that because I think that's a, that's a part of a, the, the problem is, is we've, we've gotten back into very narrow little gender um, boxes, which, which is just stupid. But, you know, you've got girly girls who hit high school and then all of a sudden with six of their friends have decided that they're trans. Well, that, that's a whole other different situation. And that has to be analyzed and, and uh, understood. And, I, and there are, you know, obviously like Lisa Littman's um, report on rapid onset gender dysphoria, which was, which was panned and, and attacked, but, but is on to something. I mean, there's definitely a, a tendency in teenage girls to, to want to conform, there's a, a tendency to social contagion that's been documented in other aspects and um, you know, before the transgender thing came along. And it's, and it's teenage girls who have, who have dramatically increased the numbers of these um, uh, attendances at gender dysphoria clinics. So that, that's unusual too. And, and you can't just kind of ignore all these things and sweep them under the rug. So, so for kids like that, to when you know as a parent that your child has never seen to be, you know, anything other than a sort of typical girl or a typical boy, and then all of a sudden they go to school and they either hear about transgender stuff in school, which of course they all are, or they meet other kids who are going through that path, or they're online and they come across it, well, you know, you should be allowed to, to find a way to deal with whatever your child is going through without automatically putting them on some um, irreversible path. And, and that's where we're hearing about detransitioners now is, is kids who really didn't, shouldn't have been on that path, but for whatever reason got on it and, and then kind of grew up as, as we all do. I mean, everybody does stupid stuff as teenagers. You grow up and you realize, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that. And then, and then all of a sudden now they've got a, they've got a huge problem on their hands. That's, that's made far worse by having gone down the, the transition path as far as they did. You know, when you're saying like the, the, the gender, you know, I mentioned tomboy, you know, I growing up, you know, I had friends who were girls who were tomboys and, you know, they would come out and play with, with the boys. They would build forts with us. They would, they all grew up they're all women. It's still they, like none of them transitioned. Couple or lesbians, you know, if you have families, but it's like, weren't we getting away from that? Weren't we saying that women and men can do pretty much anything? Obviously, you know, like there are some physical limitations. There, there should be no problem with a girl playing with truck or a girl roughhousing or a boy playing with doll. What I don't get is, you know, even if they're starting 11 or 12 or 13, somewhere around there, like between 12 and 13, like just starting puberty, starting out of the last the boy wants to be a little bit more flamboyant or the girl's turning into a bit of a tomboy. Why is like not just saying, okay, do what you want, be happy. And if that continues, then you can start talking about life altering things because I don't understand how a doctor can give something like that when the body isn't developed yet. That's where my concern is like, I'm looking at this, like when you mentioned detransitioners, I saw that case in London and I, I've been following this a little bit. That's going to be like, to me, it seems like it's going to be like the, the repressed memory thing with a psychologist. 
and and that was there wasn't a lot of lawsuits, but there were some, and it was a huge blow up because it was an awful thing that had been done. But now you're causing some real irreversible damage to kids. I mean, is it going to take a few lawsuits until finally you know insurance companies say we won't cover you, and then the doctors stop, or like what, what's that going to take? Yeah, well, it may. You know, the old saying is, um, um, I'm not going to say it correctly, but and I don't even remember who said it, but but um, people, you know, men lose their um, lose their senses on mass and regain it only one by one. You know, it, it and that's sort of what's happened is there's been this sort of mass um, kind of madness, of the crowds, mass delusion. Everybody has to jump on this bandwagon, and those who have been questioning of that have been quickly vilified, quickly marginalized. Um, and, and it's been clear that if you, if you speak against the, the dogma, that you are a bigot, you are a transphobe, and, and that message has resonated. And it's, you know, the, it's, these, the, the trans activists, um, adults, by the way, who are kind of pushing this on kids, um, have their own agendas, and they have been, they have been pushing this through uh, various medical standards and infiltrating organizations that set the standards for physicians and, and therapists. And, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a, an amazing transformation that they've managed to accomplish by virtue of keeping dissent um, in check, you know, by, by humiliating people who, who want to speak up against it. And, and, that, and we see that in so many other different areas too. But, but in this one, it's got a very, very serious impact on kids. So yeah, I agree with you on the on the gender expression question. We should be expanding those categories, and I think we were. I mean, I was a kid in the '70s, teenager in the '80s. Um, we didn't, you know, the girls didn't have pink Lego. The girls just, you know, we got on our bikes, we wore overalls, we played in the dirt. I, I, I don't think there was ever any question about those kinds of roles in those days. We were we were pushing the the boundaries and. Um, I still remember being in sixth grade and, and uh, uh, lobbying the principal to say the girls shouldn't have to wear um, sundresses if they want to stay cool in the summer, they should get to wear shorts like the boys. And so that rule was changed and we got to all wear shorts. Yeah, I'm really dating myself, but that was a thing. <laughs> and, and, you know, that those categories should just be continuing to expand. But now we've actually narrowed them in so much to the point where they got these little gender spectrums they put on the board at school. And if you aren't a Barbie doll in pink, then you may, you know, you're, you're somewhere else on the spectrum. They start planting that seed with kids that if you're not in this tiny little box of what's defined as sort of feminine characteristics or masculine characteristics, then maybe you're somewhere else on this spectrum. And that, and that gets kids thinking, well, you know, if I'm not comfortable with my body or I'm a little bit different, maybe I'm, maybe I'm something else. And so it's, so the actual conversion is happening in our schools when they undermine kids um, understanding of their own uh, sense of self and start planting seeds that they might be some creation that gender ideologues have put together. Along that line, I, I know it's not as pervasive in Canada as it is in the United States, but a lot of this like critical social justice stuff in the curriculum. Now, it's harder for me to find information for Canada than it is for the U.S. As far as I can tell, like some of the race stuff, it's only in three provinces full on. But now, like I, I've been reading this year because of Bill C-6 coming through, and then we had what C-16 before, there's a lot of gender stuff coming in through the curriculum through schools, K through 12 all across Canada. But if you take a look at, okay, when you mentioned teenage girls, now along the same time, if they're being taught in school, like not to be sexist, but they're doing it from the intersectional framework and they're saying, okay, 
you know, women are oppressed. They're telling little girls that you're never going to get ahead as a woman. You're never going to do this. And then they start hearing a queer theory and gender theory, or even, I guess, like, you know, primary school now, I'm not sure. Wouldn't that then be, okay, well, if I'm going to be oppressed as a woman, why not become a boy? I don't know if that's part of it. I don't know if this is a tinfoil hat conspiracy on my part. And again, the problem with this stuff is like you mentioned at the start, the language. It's like, no, we don't want to stop people from, I guess, I don't care if it's a little boy, six years old, who ends up becoming a woman. And even from like six, they're showing some traits. You can let that, you can support the boy. You can, you know, wear dresses, do whatever you want. Just don't put them on the medication until they're old enough to decide. So that's, I mean, that's, but having this in classrooms taught from one specific slant. I don't know if you've seen anything or if you've heard about anything. I know you're busy like working on, on the bill and like working like to kind of you know, push back on the bill, but have you heard anything about in schools where they're giving like a, a balanced view of this or is it only like the gender theory and the queer theory version of it where it's your identity is all that matters and you express yourself the way you express it and that's it? Well, there's no question that a lot of that stuff has infiltrated into the schools and uh, you know, the, the teachers colleges are, um, sort of a bastion of critical theory anymore. And so, you know, it's inevitably going to come in. I may have told you before, or you've seen that we have a case uh, with uh, a little girl in Ottawa who was told that by her teacher in grade one, that when, well, they had this whole lesson on on gender and there was um, a spectrum put up on the on the board and the kids got to go up and choose where they fit on that spectrum and she identified as a uh, the farthest extreme of girl and was told by the teacher after she had selected that that there are there's no such thing as girls no such thing as boys no such thing as girls there um and it really just threw this poor kid for a loop because she was trying to make sense of her world as a six-year-old would and to be told that this thing that you always thought you were doesn't even exist um, was was psychologically harmful to her. And so when the, the, the mom, Pam Buffoni, who's become quite an activist now herself on this for parental rights and to understand gender, because it, it threw her for a loop too. She hadn't had no idea this kind of stuff was being taught. And um, when she tried to take it up with the principal and the superintendent, you know, they basically just um, brushed her off. I mean, this is just what, this is what we're doing and, and gender fluidity is part of the curriculum and, uh, and, and they couldn't identify a particular lesson. And this is the thing too, it's kind of insidious. You know, if a parent says, well, hey, I want, I want my kid pulled out of a class where you're, be, where you're having a lesson on gender identity because I don't think that that's something that my child should, should learn. Um, well, you know, they'll say, well, we don't actually have a lesson on that. But, but what they have are teaching moments, little opportunities that come up that aren't really part of the curriculum where they will tell a child, like they did the six-year-old, about things like surgery to change your body. So this kind of stuff is seeping in to the classrooms from a very young age, whether it's formally part of the curriculum or not. Um, and we know we have curriculum like in BC, we have the SOGI 123, and we have, um, you know, that, that really pushes that gender uh, stuff to the fore. So... Um, yeah, it is. It's definitely in the schools. And, and so, you know, when you think about it as a kid, and, and this is what's happening, is a lot of kids are learning about this stuff and then 
you know, they're, they're incorporating that into their understanding of them, themselves. You know, they'll have boys that say, well, I, you know, all the other boys are kind of mean to me. I'm, I, I'm a bit sensitive. Um, they hurt my feelings. They're kind of rough. I rather like the girls. Maybe I'm a demi boy. I mean, they're given a language to identify their discomfort. And then they kind of, you know, go along some path thinking that they're on some um, different identity spectrum. Well, you know, the reality is every single child, I, I can't imagine any who, do, who, who don't at some point in growing up feel like they are being picked on for some reason or not liked for some reason or they become self-conscious for some reason about a part of them. And this is becoming a universal explanation for any discomfort that a, a young person has with their social circumstances or their bodies. I mean, everybody... When you, especially going through puberty, isn't sure, do I, am I normal? Do I have something wrong? And, and so it, it's becoming a convenient explanation for a lot of things. And, but without a concomitant uh, reference to the harms that would come from going down this path. And that's now what we're starting to see. So if I can talk a little bit about this case in, in the UK, just a couple of weeks ago with this detransitioner, that was very, uh, groundbreaking in terms of maybe starting to 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 help people regain their senses that one by one man will kind of regain their common sense um that i think that is instrumental in helping a few people to wake up and hopefully it'll become a, a snowball and, and pick up the pace so this was a a young woman by the name of kirabel who was 23 at the time of the uh, recent hearing she had gone on, I think, puberty blockers at 16, by the way, had a troubled background, uh, had some other mental health issues, and very quickly got put onto the path for transition. And actually, I believe she's, uh, she's a lesbian. And that is another factor. A lot of kids in their adolescence are struggling with their sexuality. And young women in particular, you know, maybe, maybe it's not just young women, but um, it could apply to both, really. But any kid uh, struggling with, with perhaps same-sex attraction um, is more easily caught up in all of this, too. So she, like, like many young girls her age, she was in that situation, and she um, went to the gender identity clinic at Tavistock in the UK, and they, they put her on the path, and without very much examination of, of other comorbidities, other underlying um, psychological issues or past traumas, and she ended up by going on the cross-sex hormones. She got a, her voice deepened. Uh, that'll never change back again. Uh, facial hair started growing. By 20, she had a mastectomy, a double mastectomy, and then gradually started to realize that that really wasn't the problem. And she became very upset about the fact that the clinic had not explored any of this other stuff and had put her on this path. So the decision was a judicial review of whether she, she and other children had the ability to even consent to, to provide informed consent to these treatments. And when they reviewed the evidence, the court actually discovered with some horror that the, um, when kids go on these puberty blockers, it is not, as I mentioned at the outset, just a pause button as, a, as has been sold to, to parents and to, to families. It really, uh, it has its own consequences but it is also sort of the, the um, lead in to the other consequences, the cross-sex hormones, the, the surgeries and so on. And so a, a child at, eight, at 10 or 12 
cannot possibly comprehend all of those consequences down the line. And that's what the court found. So, so they basically said that, that um, children under, I think, I think they said under 14, um, couldn't, you know, highly unlikely they could provide informed consent and 15 and 16 also dubious. And they said even for some 16 and 17 year olds, it would, uh, it would be sensible to, to have a court determine whether it's appropriate for them to, to go down this path. So, and now just recently, the, this Tavistock Clinic has put out a study that was nine years in the making. They only just put it out and there's a lot of question about that, which actually sort of confirmed that, um, that I think one out of 44 kids that went on puberty blockers did not go all the way down the, the path. So anyways, it's, it's groundbreaking, it's earth shattering, it's frightening, and uh, hopefully more and more clinicians will now start to speak up and say, yeah, you know, this, this was the wrong thing to do and we need to, we need to correct big time. You mentioned Ontario. I mean, the, like the harm that's being done to kids and their, you know, their bodies and like their psyche. That's, I only want to contemplate that because that's going to be horrific to deal with. But I, I read about one case in Ontario and I could be getting this wrong. So if I am, please correct me. Uh, but it was the law in Ontario when they changed the family uh, the family law where if the parents didn't affirm the gender, then child protective services could like, I'm not saying they're going to go in and do it, but they could take the child away. And it, I, again, I could be getting this wrong. Um, it was a kid in school. It was kindergarten. It was at a new school. And as far as what I remember, the kid was autistic, walked out of the wrong washroom and someone from the school, I, I, I don't, it was a school official. I don't know if it was a teacher or administrator or whatever. Said, oh, have you told your parents that you're, you know, you're a girl now? And the kid said, no, why would they? They'd get upset. And this autistic kid was taken away for two or three days until the parents could get him back from Child Protective Services. I'm all for supporting the, you know, supporting the child doing what they want. But like, how are these people being trained to assess that? Because, hey, like I said, it was a new kid you know, in a new school, got lost, maybe went to the wrong washroom. The kid was autistic. Maybe couldn't understand the question properly. And then they're taken away for two or three days from their parent. That's ridiculous. Like if I was a parent and someone came to my door and said, well, you know what? You're not affirming your child's gender. We're going to take them away. I would be grabbing my gun. Well, yeah. I mean, parental rights are really, um, are really taking a beating in all of this. And that's, you know, one of the angles that we've come from on the, uh, you know, analyzing the charter application or implications of all of this. People do have a right to parent their children as they see fit. Now, of course, as they get older and you know closer to adulthood, then the child's wishes tend to start to to take precedence, especially when we're talking about medical things. Um, you know that's that's normal. You know there there just seems to be this demonization of parents when it comes to LGBTQ kids or or kids you might think were were such like in your example i don't know that case but so i won't comment on that specifically but i i do know that um there seems to be this tendency in the schools now to treat parents as though they are almost the enemy you know they keep they keep this information from parents they will often uh socially transition a kid at school without telling the parents so a, a child will have one name at school and a different name at home um how does that work well, that, who, who knows? I guess they just, they, just uh, they, they, they make the assumption that the parents are not going to be supportive and, they're, and then they, they give the child that support, they, they think, at school, um, whether the parents are involved or not. So you could have a parent not even knowing that their child is called something else at school. And, you know, the other thing is the, um, 
some of the other legislation is starting to kind of incorporate this thinking. So the child and family services legislation, um, you know, now they, they include considerations for placement about LGBTQ kids. So I have another case involving a family that wanted to foster babies and, you know, they're a loving Christian family actually. And, and which is relevant to all of this, because as soon as it became known that they were, um, that the, the dad was a Christian pastor, um, who, you know, was, was asked, so do you believe in all that Old Testament stuff? <laughs> you know? And he said, well, yeah, because <laughs> I'm a pastor and we believe the Bible is the word of God. Um, they were told they could not foster infants because their values did not align with that of, the, um, of, of child and family services. And by that they meant um, if there's a child that we place with you, and if that child happens to be gay, never mind, by the way, that they were only looking to foster babies, so it wouldn't have even been relevant. But even if it were, they make the assumption that the parents are going to, um, in some way, be harmful to this child. I mean, we're talking about placing children, by the way, who are coming from horrific backgrounds or, you know, for whatever reason, have to be removed from their family of origin. And we're saying, you can't go to this loving Christian family because you might be gay someday and, and they might treat you differently or, or not affirm that. And of course, these parents said, look, we would love any child that came into our home and we would support them. And, and uh, anyway, that this, is, this stuff is sort of leaching into that whole area as well. And I do have some concern that if it continues, that parents will find... Um, you know, that that becomes a ground for removal from their care. I'm going to make a speculation on that. If that had been uh, a Muslim couple and the guy was an imam, that would not have come up because, you know, we don't want to offend Muslims. Mm -hmm. We don't want to seem racist. Now, I don't agree with the decision, but if you're going to do that for a Christian pastor, it has to be done for a Muslim imam. It has to be done for a rabbi, it has to be done for any fundamentalist faith where they go, you know, there's edicts against homosexuality and all that. Because if you're going to do that, it has to be done fairly across the board. Otherwise, you, you know, that's one of the things in some of the stuff I find really pernicious is it's only done one way. It's not done in both directions. On the race thing, I see it. Like, I could play the race thing a lot if I wanted to, but, you know, I'm just not. And now with this, I'm... I, like I hear from, you know, I'll, I'll, like Andy Sullivan, I hear, I, you know, read some of his stuff or um, Katie Herzog, I read some of her stuff and it's, they're actually, there's a lot of homophobia coming out of that stuff. I mean, especially directed towards women. Like if, if you're a lesbian and you won't sleep with a trans woman who still has a penis, you're a transphobe. How does that reconcile? Like, like by affirming their gender, are you then not converting them away from being homosexual or lesbian? Like there is, right. there is a contradiction there. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, and that is certainly the argument. So when I was presenting at the House of Commons uh, Justice Committee last week, I decided because they were not hearing from um, important voices that I thought they needed to hear from. Um, I focused on the LGB Canada report, which basically, um, you know, they've split from the T in some of these organizations now because they really are at cross purposes. And, and that report really just was no holds barred. It talked about this ideology and the impact that it has on the, on the gay community. And, and in fact, um, I quoted one of the lines from the report, which was that, you know, uh, lately in, in, in 
hushed whispers around, you know, uh, around their kitchen tables and gays and lesbians are saying, um, thank God I'm not gay growing up today. Or somebody would have told me I was transgender and I would have, I would have been sent for sexual reassignment surgery. So there, there really are some uh, competing uh, interests here. And, and, um, and the other one that I raised was the D-Trans Canada. I had invited them to spend, to share my time with me. And then that wasn't allowed for reasons which I, I, I don't entirely understand. But uh, in any event, I made a point of, of drawing attention to the D-Trans situation because um, obviously that, the, fa- the existence of detransitioners throws a wrench into the argument that uh, gender identity is immutable, cannot be changed. You know, it just, it's a mess. It makes a mess of their, of their ideology. And, and so for that reason, I got, by the way, um, after I made my little five minute speech, um, the NDP MPP, who actually admitted that he brought in Bill C6, or sorry, Bill C16, to include gender expression and gender identity in the um, grounds to be protected, uh, with all the implications that have since flowed from that, um, he basically said, you know, I'm always disappointed to hear transphobia dressed up in, uh, even if it's dressed up in nice legal language, and uh, and to hear this, um, you know, these, this fake narrative of detransitioners and and a false concern for the well-being of children. <laughs> so I, I saw that. Isn't that appalling? I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, okay, I want to touch on that because you mentioned this earlier as well. Like, oh, you're being smeared as right wing. Um, and now I saw this with Islam. Okay. After 9-11, you had certain, like, you know, Ayan Hirsi Ali came out after 9-11, um, you know, as like one of the first really vocal ex-Muslims. You had Ibn Warak writing his book, but then you had people like Majid Nawaz coming out and more and more people, like Sam Harris started speaking up. I mean, you know, you had some pushback against Islam, but right away it was, that's a right-wing narrative or you're right-wing. But one thing I found with a lot of right-wing people, um, like a lot of the bigger ones, like so someone like Robert Spencer, not Richard Spencer, the guy, you know, the, the alt-right guy, but Robert Spencer, like he does Jihad Watch. Um, some people call him far-right anyways. But he would read it, and he brought up this term, takia. Now, I was raised in a Muslim family. You know, I was, I, like I was born Muslim, like... I had never heard that term in my life. And then I started asking some, some of my other you know, Muslim friends and family. And we're, we're from a Sunni background. It's a Shia thing. Now, right-wingers actually started, whatever, right-wingers, you know, like they started reading the Quran and the Hadith and looking into it. Whereas from the left-wing atheist side of stuff, it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, it's just kind of like Christianity. Oh, it's a little bit worse. Yeah, you know, the, the, some of them would say, oh, the hijab is just like the nun's habit and stuff like that, right? And right away, it was right-wing talking points. I'm seeing the same thing happening with the trans issue. I'm seeing the same thing happening with the race issue. So I heard what that, that I, I'm assuming it's the same guy because the, the thing I saw, he said some other things. All oh, the D-trans is a right-wing myth. Well, no, it's not. And to just instantly label it right-wing, it's like a way to shut down your conversation. They, they don't want to hear it. So they make this boogeyman. Oh, those are just right-wing talking points. Like we've spoken before. Personally, I don't know your political affiliations, but you seem like you know, someone who supports classical liberal ideas, like Enlightenment values. And I, I guess that's right wing now because yep. I mean, <laughs> apparently. But one, like the reason I bring it up too is because the queer theory stuff. I don't know how much of you, you've read. I've read some. There is, if you read Judith Butler, if you read um, Gail Rubin, and then I mean Foucault, they take a lot from them. 
there is normalization of pedophilia. So when you hear queer theory, a lot of people will think like homosexuals. They're not really going into it. So right-wing people who have read it, and then, I mean, you, you've had that trope for a long time, oh, gay people are going to turn your kid, you know, going to go after your kids or whatever. But if right-wing people read this, whereas I know the progressive side does on the left, but if the average, quote, you know, left-wing person doesn't read that, it's like, well, how can you say that? It's like, well, you know, they have, some, they're taking something that's in the literature and they're spreading it across abroad. I, my only concern is like how to get more people on the left to start maybe looking into this stuff or reading it. And because it is a very emotional thing, like, oh, you're against conversion therapy. Oh, you're against trans people. Oh, you don't want to let people, you know, you have a problem with uh, transgender people in general. Like, it Well, I think more people are starting to realize this. I, I hope it happens with greater pace. But at the moment, I, I, you know, you do see some people from the left starting to go, wait a minute, you know, this, this is getting to be too much. You know, um, yeah, you get branded as, as right wing and, and that's supposed to be a slur. You know, the way I like to look at it is, um, and I, I know Justin or Jordan Peterson touched on some of this stuff when he was talking about the necessity of having both the left and the right as sort of a, a they, they balance one another, right? And, and the way I like to think of it is, you know, the, the, the progressives are the gas pedal and the conservatives are the brakes. And, you know, you can't have a functioning vehicle without both pedals, but you're a hell of a lot safer in one that only has brakes rather than one that only has a gas pedal. And so, you know, I, sometimes the conservatives lay a little heavy on the brakes and, and don't want to change things that should be changed and, and they need to be nudged in the right direction. But, um, and, and I'm not saying like, I, I don't, I've never really felt like I fit very well on the conservative side, although I increasingly have moved in that direction. But I, I would say I'm a individualist, a classical liberal, and I don't, uh, I don't like, um, you know, some of the moralizing that I see on the on the far right either. So I'm I'm in that sort of um, libertarian space, I guess that that is is becoming a very small space because there's pressures of, from authoritarians on both sides. But I do want to say that um, uh, you know the the left has a history of not being able to find any breaks and going too far and including what involving children. I came across an article in Der Spiegel, uh, which nobody would say was a right wing rag, of course, um, probably dating back to 2010 or so. Uh, Cause I, I actually just Googled one time, what happens when the left goes too far? And I found that article and it talked about the sexual revolution in Germany in the 1960s and how they, um, some of them, actually did start experimenting on, uh, on children and normalizing adult-child sexual relations in, you know, they had, I mean, I, it was, it's disturbing to read, honestly, and I don't even want to spend any time talking about it, but, but the point is there is a history um, of some pedophilia that, that ties into this expansiveness of, of sexuality to, to include children and, and, and sexualizing the discussion with children and talking about children's children should be just allowed to play and enjoy their childhood when they're small and not have to worry about their sexual, um, where, where they fit in terms of the, the queer theory and, and so on. But anyway, that, that is something that is not, not unusual. We, we have seen it before. But okay. Sticking with the queer mm -hmm. theory for just a second, it's because they had it in the States. I had, I don't know if they've had stuff like this in Canada. I'm going to preface this by saying like, I have no problem with someone in drag coming teaching uh reading to kids in a library like if there's a if there's a guy in drag who comes reads okay you can tell the little kids you know sometimes adults dress up you like to dress up you know whatever you want to you however you want to explain it to the kids right 
but I have an issue with what I saw with some of the places in the States. There was one where it's like a simulated, um, simulated birth. There was another one where the drag, you know, like the person in drag was twerking and stuff and like mock stripping in front of kids. Now, A, to let kids know that sometimes adults do that and it's okay. I, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I don't think that's there's a there should be a huge issue with a person in drag reading to kids. You know, if you're a parent, you don't want your kid there, fine. But I don't think it should be like, oh my god, this is the end of the world. But drawing the line with, okay, do you want to show the kids a simulated birth? Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, you know, or okay, the simulated birth, they can say, well, don't you want your kids to know about where babies come from? But that's yeah, that should be a parental decision. But the fake stripping, like, I mean, like they had a stripper pole in there and it was like, you know, fake stripping went down to like a corset or something, but, and then started twerking in front of the kids. And these were like six to 10 year old. Yo, come on. Like there, there's gotta be a line. Somewhere. Well, there should be a line and, and uh, conservatives are known for drawing lines and, and um, the hard left, not so much. Um, but where I don't, I don't understand why parents don't, don't draw a line themselves, you know? And, and I, I think to a large degree, we've now been conditioned to think that pretty much anything that comes from this perspective is to be validated or, or that it's, it's cruel to, to not support it. And, and, you know, people, people will check their own instincts and their own, you know, they'll, they'll allow themselves cognitive dissonance in order to be seen as socially accepted and, and to, um, you know, to be, to be, to be on the right side of history as they think. And so, um, it causes even parents, I think, to to check their their better instincts and and just say, well, you know, this is we don't want to be discriminatory. This is this is how some people live, and my kids should be exposed to this. Well, maybe 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 not. Well, when you mentioned the parents, there was one of them. If I could find it, I'll send it to you. Is the one with the stripping? Like there were parents there, and there were you know parents and kids were there, and the looks on the parents' faces were really uncomfortable but none of them were saying anything because I guess they didn't want to seem like they were the one so that, you know, they were the trans folk. I'm sorry. I, I wouldn't want a woman doing a mock strip tease in front of kids. Like forget that it's, you know, it's not the drag that's bothering me. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, you want to bring a woman in there in a bikini to read to kids. Fine. Just, you know, or, or like dressed up as flamboyantly as a drag queen. Fine. I don't care. It's, it's that mock strip tease. Like there is, like you said, keep, let's keep kids innocent. Mm-hmm. And it's not even so much like, oh, you don't want to let, let kids experience. No, like let kids experience things for themselves. Let them, you know, go out and play. And if they see something, come home, ask, ask their parents, ask their teachers. I don't There's see just how- so much time for all of that. Uh, you know, and childhood is such a, a fleeting moment. And as a parent, I know that um, when my kids were small, that was something that I was very cognizant of and wanted to make sure that they kind of got to enjoy childhood as much as possible because I knew, you know, it'd be over before they knew it. Um, so they weren't pushed to watch adult t- uh, movies or, or, you know, an adult themed things before they were old enough, you know, they, and so as kids, they, they weren't exposed to that. And I would not have exposed my kids to that. Uh, I, w- I would have hoped that parents feeling uncomfortable would say, you know, that's enough. Um, but like I say, that, um, that, that, that eagerness to sort of, seem to be going with the flow socially is, is a very powerful thing for, for anybody, really. There's only so many people who are willing to be the contrarians and stand up and say, enough, <laughs> you know, this is wrong. On that, like, the, not, not only so much the contrarian stuff, but you were talking about your kids. 
I, I know Greg Lukianoff and uh, Jonathan Haidt, when they talk about kids born after 85, as opposed to kids before, because you had that cutoff, like, especially in the States when they had all the, like, you had a bunch of reports of child's being kid, children being kidnapped. So that's when the scare started. So, I mean, I, I know it, it's in Canada as well, where, you know, if you leave your, you let your kid walk down the block, you know, if they're 10 years old, your neighbors might freak out and go come berate you or call the police on you or something. And I'd also spoken to Lenore Skenazi from uh, free range kids. And when you're putting that much extra pressure on parents, like you always have to be around your kids. You always have to, you know, you have to take them to their, um, you know, they can't go play in the park by themselves. You know, you, you have to escort them everywhere. It doesn't give you enough time as a parent to, you know, maybe pay attention to what's going on in their school. Like look at their, you know, help them with their homework, whatever, because, you know, you've worked all day, then you've helped your kids with this. And then, you know, you've got a couple hours at night to relax. And then at the same time, like, you know, people might look, oh, well, they're going to do, oh, they're going to talk to kids about homophobia in school, or they're going to talk to kids about transphobia in school. Oh, that's a good thing. And then just leave it. Like, is there a problem with that as well? Like, I, I, again, this is maybe a tinfoil hat thing on my side, but it's, you know, the amount of pressure they're putting on parents civil pressure or if it's you know family family law and stuff like that where you have to be with your kids like how much does that have an effect on how much time a parent can spend looking at what their kids are learning and stuff like that yeah well there's some weird and almost conflicting trends i think um on one hand parents do um sort of helicopter over their kids when they're out in the world but then on the, at the same time so many have just kind of given up when it comes to things that are online or or um you know, that, that are happening in their schools or whatever. Um, it's hard to reconcile that, you know, how many families are giving their kids telephone or like cell phones with access to the internet on them and, you know, and, and all the things that go with that um, without properly screening it or, or, you know, putting, putting controls in place. Um, you know, again, I don't want to be judgmental. Everybody's got parent parenting styles of their own, but uh, but it is hard to be a parent right now. It really is uh, in in the sense there's there are a lot of societal pressures, but there aren't a lot of supports. We many people um, are raising their families away from extended families. So whereas we used to have grandparents who could step in and help out, that that isn't always the case. And there's a uh, you know work pressures and and um, uh, and, and then the societal pressure not to you know not to uh, well, A, to do all these activities and, and, and B, to not let them kind of roam freely in the neighborhood. Um, maybe the pandemic will have changed some of that. Maybe some people having gotten off the hamster wheel will, uh, will, will not get back on okay. so readily. But, you know, because I, 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 I didn't always think of myself as a contrarian necessarily, but once I started homeschooling my own kids for various reasons, um, none of which were ideological, um, I kind of got off that hamster wheel myself of, of social approval. And uh, once you're a weirdo in one thing, you know, it's easy to, to kind of be in, <laughs> in multiple things. You see the world a little differently, let's just say. Uh, so, but the kids also um, had a lot more freedom that way too. And I used to send, we lived near a forested area. My kids were outdoorsy kids and uh, I had no problem with letting them go off to play in the woods. Yeah. You know, they were, they knew the rules. They knew water dangers and things like that. But I, uh, I did certainly get some uh, disapproving glares from neighbors for, uh, for letting them go off and play. And they always went with, with each other, so they weren't alone. 
I brushed it off. But it, but it is hard for, for parents that, that are worried about fitting in with their neighbors, like myself, who, who, uh, you know, who will kind of keep everybody from going to the park until they're 12 or 14 years old. You know, if I was a kid growing up right now, I'd hate that. I, I love the freedom I had as a kid. We would leave the house in the morning on the weekends and not come back until dinner time. It was awesome. Um, I, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but I want to get back to Bill C6. So like, where are we with that right now? And how is that going? Because um, I know that originally it was like C8 and that got canned and now they're starting with C6 again or something like that. Like it was. Yeah, there's a real determination to get something passed here because it started off, uh, there was a Senate bill at one point and um and then i think the election interfered with that one and then uh um c6 was brought in in the house uh, by the trudeau or sorry c8 was brought in by the trudeau government in the house and then when um when the prime minister prorogued parliament there uh recently that took all the bills that were on the table were um were wiped away right and then then they came back with with what was now c6 it was basically the same thing that had been on the table before so um after all the the committee hearings last week um, and by the way there's a huge amount of of um community engagement in this i think they had almost 300 briefs submitted which i think is close to a record if not a record of number of of briefs being submitted from various organizations and individuals who who feel impacted by this bill so the committee has a lot of work to do uh, to read it. Now, I guess what happened is as they, um, they finished up the three days worth of hearings from various invited uh, witnesses last week, and then they started, the committee started going through a line-by-line -line exercise to uh, consider potential amendments to the bill. And one of the MPs uh, from the Bloc Québécois moved to, moved to push the whole exercise off to January so they'd have time to read some of these briefs or all of them, but even assuming that they couldn't read them all, just to, just to get through some of the key ones. And that was actually voted down by the Liberals and the NDP, who just for whatever reason want to rush this process along. So the, um, uh, they did go through the exercise of considering some amendments. Those will be voted on at the end of January, apparently. And uh, the amendments actually include now putting in gender expression into the bill, which I think is frankly kind of ridiculous. Um, and, uh, but, but there might be some movement in terms of trying to open up the, the language to make it a little bit more, um, safe for therapists to, to do different kinds of therapy that aren't necessarily affirmation. We'll have to consider what those amendments look like in, in more detail, but, and we'll, and we'll see if they get passed. I had argued personally that they should pull gender identity out of this entirely. And, and you know, let's focus on the, the harm that everybody thinks we're talking about, which is trying to coerce somebody to change their sexual orientation. Forget about all this other stuff, get it out of there. And I wanted to be able to give the conservatives and others who might be opposing this, the language to say, look, I'm not a transphobe because I think the gender identity shouldn't be in this. I'm somebody who cares about child safeguarding and I am seeing the harms here and we need to put the brakes on and, and look at this more closely. And I'm hoping that as a result, you know, last time after the second reading, only seven conservatives voted against it. And of course they were immediately vilified on social media. Oh, you people all wanna support conversion therapy. And I actually, some newspaper accused me of that too. I mean, I said right at the outset of my speech that I'm not, you know, I completely agree with banning coercive conversion therapy of, for sexual orientation. but. Anyway, um, I'm hopeful that more will stand up against it, but I, I suspect there's a, 
you know, just given that the, the Liberals and NDP um, do have control over the House, it's likely to pass. But then it still has to go to the Senate, and maybe we can make some impact at the Senate as well. Are they going to do a gender-based analysis plus on this bill? Because will it affect things like women, in, you know, trans trans women in sports, or trans women going to men's prisons, or trans women going to uh, like shelters and stuff like that? Like, will they do it? Because I know they haven't done one for C sixteen, or they haven't released it. <laughs> I haven't released it. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know if they will or not. I mean, I, it wouldn't impact those things you just mentioned, but what it might impact is. Um, you know, just the sheer number of girls and, and like teenage girls, young women who are going through this, uh, this process. I mean, I, I just don't think you should be ignoring the data, which has an increase of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent um, in the numbers of girls accessing gender identity treatments over, you know, it used to be something that was, that was sort of 50-50 and it was in a very, very small number. I mean, this just was not something that, that you ever heard about, you know, going back 10 or 15 years or, or very rarely. Um, and in the, in, in the last decade, that number has just gone up exponentially and particularly with young girls. And so there is a gender impact of putting all these people on an affirmation only bandwagon. You're going to basically end up sterilizing a whole bunch of kids um, who don't belong on that because you're not identifying rapid onset gender dysphoria as a legitimate concern or, you know, social contagion and, and other things that might contribute to that, which teenage girls tend to be more susceptible to. So, so there is a gender analysis that should be done. I would doubt very much that it is being done. And, and certainly if it is, um, I, I'd be surprised if they released yeah. it. Well, thanks a lot for coming on and going through some of this stuff. I want to let people know where they can get a hold of you. Uh, or if you've, and if you've got any links you want to send me, like if there, I know there was a petition or something going around, I'll put that in the description. People can take a look at that. Sure. Sure. Uh, if, yeah, if you're looking me, for me, I'm uh, on social media, on uh, Twitter particularly, um, at LDBuildy. And uh, I work for the Justice Center and, and uh, did some of this work as a result of my involvement there. So um, at JC, uh, sorry, LDBuildy at jccf.ca, although I had a, an interest in this topic um, sort of independently of that as well. And uh, um, we do uh, any sort of charter cases that... Um, where, where individual rights and freedoms are being infringed. So if that uh, is of interest, there's lots of stuff on our website about that. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on and thanks everyone for listening.